Okay. Does it throb too? <laughs> All right. Blood vessels. What a segue. I don't think I've ever seen that one in a book, so I'm not sure where you'd find that. Maybe you can give it a special name or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Meat sweats. All right. So. Um, the one thing to remember, we've got this heart that's a pump. We have these blood vessels that moves blood around. We said it's a, a, a system by which, you know, transportation is one of the key things. Well, how does blood get around? It gets around through vessels, and it's said to be a closed system. In other words, blood doesn't leak out. Things do leave the cardiovascular system, and things do come in. But ultimately, we generally don't tend to leak a lot of products in blood, so that blood tends to be what's called a closed system. Um, the heart is the pump and the pathways are the vessels. And in vessels that transport blood away from the heart uh, and is usually oxygenated, they are called arteries. There's only one exception in the heart. When the blood leaves the right atrium, it is still deoxygenated. But because the pulmonary arteries go away from the heart, they are called arteries. So they are the only arteries in the body that carry deoxygenated blood are the pulmonary arteries. Blood that carry or vessels that carry blood to the heart are said to be veins, and again the other except and, and tends to be deoxygenated blood, and the exception of that is the pulmonary veins that are coming from the lungs to the heart does carry oxygenated blood and are known as pulmonary veins simply because they are carrying blood to the heart. So they all have layers to them. Uh, and they are known in blood vessels as tunics or tunica. Um, there are three layers. There is an outer, a middle, and an inner. The innermost layer is known as the tunica intima, and it contains the same type of endothelial layer as the inside of the heart did, which we call the endocardium. So it's the same thing. The middle layer or the muscular layer is known as the tunica media, which is uh, smooth muscle and sheets of elastin in a circular fashion. And it is this smooth muscle that's innervated by the sympathetic system. And it is a smooth muscle that either allows for cell, uh, the, the vessels to dilate and get larger in diameter or to constrict and get smaller in diameter. So in some cases, again, that fight or flight, when we're ready to do that, certain areas of the body, the vessels will shrink and shut down for less blood, thereby shunting blood to the more important areas. So if we're really in fight or flight, our digestive system tends to shut down. All the blood gets out to our muscles to do whatever we need to do. Um, the smooth muscle allows for, I said, larger lumen or a smaller lumen. It is The layer is critical in regulating hemodynamics. In other words, where blood flows and how much blood flows to where and when. In fact, if every single blood vessel in your body opened up to its normal diameter, you would die because your blood pressure would bottom out. You don't have enough blood to fully fill completely open vessels entirely in your body. So you have this deliberate sort of opening and closing, shunting blood around where blood needs. So all of you guys now have just had a bite to eat. You have this massive amount of blood that's heading now in towards your digestive system to digest food. Hence the reason why they suggest not to go swimming when you are just finished a meal because you can get cramps. Because you may be, if you get too vigorous, you may be asking... Um, blood for your muscles but they're spending so much time working around the food that you're eating the muscle the muscle may not get enough blood and it starts to cramp um, this layer also greatly influences blood pressure and that's the other thing to recognize that the ability to dilate or constrict blood vessels or the diameter of blood vessels truly affects the hemodynamics of blood pressure remember the hose that i said could be long enough and no water comes out if I make those vessels more narrow, the friction increases and therefore the, every, the whole system has to work harder to run it through. This is why when you do massages and you cause the peripheral vessels to dilate, you will actually lower your patient's blood pressure because you've lowered resistance in the vessels because you've made them larger in diameter just by the sheer fact of stimulating the capillary beds under the skin and opening them up. Yeah, arthrosclerosis can cause a vessel not to be able to change diameter because it gets crunchy and hard. Therefore, the vessel can't dynamically alter. 
so it becomes an issue because it can't. Uh, the tunica media is more defined in arteries as compared to veins because it's in a higher pressure system. So the blood in arteries is in a much higher pressure system than those in the venous system. So we see here the tunica adventitia is the outermost layer, tunica media is the middle layer, and the tunica intimate is the endothelial inner layer. You can see here in this diagram that the muscular wall um, uh, of, the, um, of the artery is much thicker as compared to the vein. And uh, because of this higher pressure system, the media needs to be thicker, whereas in the veins it does not. Um, so the external layer is called the tunica, external or adventitia. It's basically collagen. And within this is where we find all the nerve fibers that help uh, stimulate whether or not the muscle is going to relax or contract. We also find lymphatic vessels and larger veins and an elastic, our vent network of elastic fibers, which of course is going to allow these vessels to open and close. In large vessels, this outer layer is infiltrated by a tiny network of blood vessels called the vasa vasorum. So these are tiny blood vessels in very large arteries that are feeding the muscular wall from the outside in as well. Uh, these three layers vary in length, diameter, and thickness depending on where we find them and which vessel we're talking about, whether it's an artery or a vein. So, arterial system. There are three types of vessels in the arterial system. The first is called elastic arteries. This is basically the aorta. This is the great vessel that's coming up out of the heart and, and, and is receiving the initial blood that's coming out of the contraction of the heart. They're the largest in diameter, approximately 2.5 to 1 centimeters. How big is that around is that? What, what would be 2 centimeters in diameter? Is that about the size of a garden hose-ish? I mean, just a bit smaller. They're also considered to be low-resistance pathways. They're also known as conducting arteries it's because from the aorta, the blood tends to go out everywhere else. The aorta helps um, direct blood to the upper limbs, direct blood to the, thor the thorax and the abdomen, and direct blood to the legs, so the lower limbs. They contain the highest percentage of elastin, and it's present in all three layers. They're relatively inactive during vasoconstriction, and these vessels are pressure reservoirs, and this produces the continuous blood flow. So, you've taken heart rate, right? Using the radial nerve, or the radial artery. So, have you, when you feel it, have any of you touch that artery soft enough to feel it expand and contract. So try it. Grab a partner. Find find their pulse first. Find their pulse per their pulse. Just like normal. Once you find it, grab it this way. Do it do it like this. Yeah, exactly like you are. Grab grab the wrist and hold it like this. This way you have more control over it. Okay, got it? Everybody got it? Okay, now what I'd like you to do, maintain contact. Let off the pressure just a little bit and see if you can feel the artery get large and smaller. So what you're feeling, you're feeling the wave. So when the when the heart contracts and it squirts out in that in that cardiac output, it's squirting blood out of the heart. And that wave continues entirely through the arterial system all the way to the end. Right? Question is, why doesn't blood squirt out, stop, squirt out, stop, squirt out, stop? Because we know if it did, it would likely clot. So blood is continually moving. Why? Because when the heart beats, it actually increases the pressure in the artery. And because it's elastic, it squeezes back, thus moving the blood. It is the fact that this, art, this uh, aorta acts as a pressure reservoir is what allows blood, instead of moving and stopping in diastole, moving in systole and stopping diastole, it is this expansion and this vasoconstriction, just due to the elastic properties of the aorta, that keeps blood constantly moving through all the vessels, nonstop. It keeps moving. So we see here uh, kind of a cross-section of uh, an actual artery under the microscope. Here is the adventitia, the outer layer here. Here is the muscular layer, the, the tunica media, and then the intima, the innermost layer, just a thin layer here lining the inside. 
in the aorta. So those were elastic arteries. So from the elastic artery, meaning the aorta, the next arteries that blood enters into are the muscular arteries. And what they're for is they're the arteries that deliver to specific organs and are named accordingly. So there's a renal artery for kidneys. There's gonadal artery for the gonads, right? Whatever those may be. And they're named accordingly. They range anywhere from a centimeter to 0.3 millimeters in diameter. They contain the thickest media, and the media has a high percentage of smooth muscle as compared to elastin. They're much more involved in vasoconstriction, and they, they, don't, they don't get large. They don't distend as much as the elastic ones. They can, but not near as much. So you'll see here, there's a fairly, uh, again, the endothelium here on the intima. We have an internal elastic lamina. We have a fibrocollagenous tissue. We have the smooth muscle here. And then we have uh, an external elastic lamina and then a fibrocollagenous tissue here, which is, makes up the adventitia. So these guys don't expand quite as much. They're much more muscular. So we've gone from the largest, the aorta, to the next smallest, the muscular arteries. Now we're going to get even smaller still to the arterioles. They are the smallest. They're from 0.3 millimeters to 10 micrometers. The larger arterioles do contain all three layers. And as they get smaller, the smallest vessels may not contain all three layers at all. In fact, may only be one. Uh, at the capillary bed, these vessels are nothing more than an endothelial lining and a single layer of smooth muscle. So you see here in the larger version, it's much thicker, and it may get down to all the way here, but all we have is some minor bands of smooth muscle and simple squamous epithelium, and that's it. Why would we want that at the capillary bed? Something so small. Yeah, this kind of configuration allows gas to move in and out of the blood system quite easily. This is your arterial here coming into the network of capillaries. And as I say, as it gets smaller, we get less and less of it as it works its way in. The capillaries are the smallest of all. They are the big networks where we move from the arterial system into the venous system. Uh, their walls are thin, just the tunica intima. The average capillary length is one millimeter and the diameter is one to 10 micrometers. In other words, they're so small in diameter, all the red blood cells line up in single file and move down accordingly. Why do you think they need to slow down? Why do you think that's a good idea to have them slow down? It allows for gaseous exchange to happen easier. If the blood vessels are moving too quickly, right, we may not get the gaseous exchange we need. So we actually jam them up and slow them down so we get good gas exchange. Um, most tissues are richly supplied with capillary beds except tendons, ligaments, and articular cartilage. And it is the artillery bed, the artillery, yeah, the capillary beds that when you cause the redness and massage, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing those capillary beds under the skin, vasodilating, filling up with blood, and that's what gives you that red look when, you're, when you touch and uh, apply some of the techniques to your patients. Uh, the makeup of the capillary allows for gas exchange and exchange of nutrients and metabolites. So the whole idea is the blood system brings things to tissue to meet their metabolic needs. Capillary beds increase surface area exceedingly, slow things down with the movement of, of these red blood cells, and allows for all kinds of exchange to occur, whether it's oxygen or metabolites or whatever it may be. And then on the venous side, as we're going to learn, it picks up all the junk from the byproducts of those cells and takes them to where they can get expelled from the body. So we have types of capillaries. And, we're, and, and types of capillaries are based entirely on how leaky they are, whether lots of large products can leak in and out or small products. So the first are the most common, and they're called continuous. They're the ones you find under the skin and muscles. They have a continuing endothelial lining. And then there are gaps of unjoined membrane called intercellular clefts, which allow limited passage of fluids and small stuff. So we see these clefts here, which are these small little areas which allow things to move in and out of the capillaries. In the brain, this type of capillary, um, its endothelial lining is complete, which helps form something called the blood-brain barrier. Have you guys heard about the blood-brain barrier? So there's a lot of things can't cross. The, the brain is very protected, and the blood-brain barrier actually prevents things from getting 
into the brain. This is one of the problems with HIV-AIDS, is that uh, that disease gets into the other side of the blood-brain barrier, and we can cure people to some degree in their body of HIV-AIDS, but some thoughts are that it arises again back from the other side of the blood-brain barrier because the medications they take can't cross it and get to the brain. The, the cocktail. i got a friend that's still alive, too. Uh, his partner died. I'm trying to think of when Ken died. It must have been late 80s, somewhere in there. He died, and Brian was diagnosed with it. And he went and he blew his uh, life insurance policy because he feared he was going to die. And then the cocktail came out, and he's still alive. Some 30 years later, almost. Yeah, really does work. Uh, HIV-AIDS now is almost more a chronic disease than a death, death certificate now. Uh, the next are fenestrated capillaries. Fenestrations mean larger holes. So they're similar, but instead of clefts, we have big pores. They're usually covered by a thin membrane or diaphragm. And it is this pore that allows um, a more permeable, or not, depending on what we do with the membrane, for larger fluids and solutes to pass to and from these areas. And we tend to find these in the small intestine in the kidneys. So you see they open and close. They're quite large. So here's your continuous, just very small areas here for exchange, whereas in fenestrated, they're quite, they're quite large. Sinusoids are the largest. They're the biggest holes in capillaries. They're leaky capillaries, and they're found in the liver, bone marrow, spleen, and adrenal medulla, and that's it. It's the only place we find them. There are large, irregular-shaped lumen. The lining is fenestrated and contains intracellular clefts. And it, what it does, it allows blood cells and large molecules to actually pass. It's one of the reasons why the liver is so bloody looking, because there's so much leaking of blood in that organ. And its configuration allows for controlled sluggish of the blood to allow for modifications. So you can see just how large these things can be. So it almost looks like it's not intact. So a lot of large things can travel back and forth, including red blood cells. So when we look at a capillary like this, this is what's considered a capillary bed. This vast network of these very, very tiny vessels that are moving from the arterial side, oxygenated, to the venous side, deoxygenated. So it's the point of transition from the arterial oxygenated blood to the venous deoxygenated blood. And uh, the movement of blood through the bed is termed microcirculation. What I want you to take note of is there is something here, little bands of muscle here, 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 and here. These are known as precapillary sphincters. What kind of role do you think they might play? Why would they open and close? Right. So that it determines if if this area that this this bed supplies is in high demand of things, all these will open up and it'll flush that whole bed full of blood. If this area is not demanding much and there's demand other places, these pre-capillary sphincters will close off, limiting how much blood travels through this bed so that more blood gets to where it's needed in other places. So there are two types of vessels then. There's the vascular shunt, also known as a met arteriole, and it is considered a thoroughfare channel. So it is a single vessel that bypasses that broad network and goes right from one side to the other, right from the arterial side to the venous side. And uh, so it directly connects the arterial and the venule by bypassing the bed. And then, of course, the true capillaries are all the small ones where you actually see exchange. So you'll see that these capillaries, these, these um, sphincters, are on either side of the shunt. So when these guys all shut down, blood will only travel along the shunt from one side to the other. If these open up, it will fill up all the smaller true capillaries to allow for lots of exchange to occur at the tissue level. Um, so the terminal arteriole leads to a metarteriole, which is continuous with the thoroughfare channel. And it joins with the post-capillary venule that drains the bed. Uh, basically, you find anywhere from 10 to 100 small, these small vessels within a bed. So you can find a lot of vessels in there, but maybe not as many as you think. And of course, the metabolic need of the tissues that it supplies will drive how much blood does or does not go through the capillary bed. And this is controlled by the precapillary sphincters. They either open or close to allow for the tissue to be serviced in terms of what its metabolic needs are. 
this is kind of an incorrect sphincter because this would suggest you cut the whole bed off and you can't. Really, these precapillary sphincters should be on either side of the actual shunt, not on the shunt itself. Any questions? That's the arterial side. So now we're going to head back to the heart on the venous side. So the one thing I want you to take away for sure is understand that on the arterial side, blood leaves the heart, and as it goes farther from the heart, it goes into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller vessels. When we get to the venous side, blood returns to the heart, going into larger and larger and larger and larger vessels. So the exact opposite. So once it's finished in the capillary bed, it returns to the heart via the venous system. And again, in the arterial side, vessels got progressively smaller. And on the venous side, they get progressively larger as we work back towards the heart. Uh, venules are 8 uh, to 10 uh, micrometers in diameter. They're, again, just like their brother on the other side, on the, on the arterial side, just an endothelial lining. They're very porous. Why? What do they exchange? So on the arterial side, we have exchange of nutrients, vitamins, and oxygen. What's on the venous side? Waste and carbon dioxide. So they need to be just as thin waltz because they need things to come back as well to head back up the blood system to the heart. Um, so the venules, smallest, then go into the next largest vessel, which are called veins. And they have three distinct tunics, just like the arteries, except everything is thinner because the pressures have dropped or diminished incredibly on the other side of the capillary bed. So as as blood travels through the the, the elastic arteries to the muscular arteries, all the way down to the arterioles, it's losing pressure, but still fairly high pressure. Once it crosses the capillary bed to the venous side, as it travels farther away from the capillary bed, the pressures get lower and lower and lower. Therefore, the veins do not have to have the same thickness of walls because it's not dealing with the same pressure system. There's a little smooth muscle and elastin, the externa is the thickest and most developed, and in the vena cava, the externa is further thickened by longitudinal bands of smooth muscle. This architectural makeup uh, has the veins able to hold vast amounts of blood. So the venous side holds a lot more blood than the arterial side because 65% of the body's total blood is found in the veins at any given time. So it holds a lot more blood than the arterial side. And you can see here, just in this diagram, quite nicely that you know, much thicker walls to deal with the pressures as compared, even the larger diameter. Varicous veins. So basically what those are is just the walls of the veins are breaking down and uh, the, the uh, valves break down and you get congestion of blood. The medical term is actually called torturous. We'll say that those are torturous. And believe it or not, the one thing about these um, they're totally genetic. I've seen high-end athletes that can do marathons, and they have varicose veins. Ladies, you all get them most of the time. Why? Not really. There's, well, I was going to say, you're more potential to have them than some of the younger ones in the class. Babies. Because they, they, they sit down in the pelvic area, and they put pressure on the veins, and you don't get the same normal flow back up. No, but um, um, so so you get you get that uh, uh, hemorrhoids are varicose veins around the anus. So if one is um, not, um, as say, somewhat constipated and always like pushing very hard to go to the bathroom to have bowel movements, they have the potential to have varicose veins in and around the uh, anus and rectum because you're you're creating these big pressures and the veins can't handle it and they kind of like a balloon filling over there. They kind of blow up. Yeah. What's that? Oh, I'm not. These are because they wouldn't penetrate enough. But on varicose veins, they do because the tissue is a bit thinner. They put preparation H on it, and it causes vasoconstriction and inflammation. It's also an anti-inflammatory. Best thing is just have them cut off. Uh, one of the worst you can have is something called esophageal varicosity. So alcoholics, because they do damage to the liver through what's called the portal system. They get backed up pressures into the bottom of the esophagus, and they can actually get varicose veins in the bottom of the esophagus, and they're really dangerous because if they pop, 
these guys can bleed out in a very short period of time and die. Yeah. So what is an anastomosis? I've used the term a couple of times. Uh, when we have networks kind of attached to each other, we call that an anastomosis. So when vascular channels unite, they form interconnections called vascular anastomoses. Most organs are supplied by more than one artery, and where the arteries meet, they form these arterial anastomoses. They provide alternate pathways called collateral channels. They also occur around joints, the heart, and the brain. Veins have far more anastomoses than arteries do. But here's an example of the shoal of the elbow. So you have the brachial artery coming down here, dividing into the radial and ulna. But in and around the elbow itself, you see you have these anastomoses that are networking all the way through. They're all interconnected, all gaining blood from the same areas. That's an example of an anastomosis. You also have another one in your hand. You have uh, ones in your brain. You have a, a very important one in your brain. So veins have thin walls due to the much lower pressure of venous blood, which I said before. The other thing is to prevent blood from flowing backwards because we're under the influence of gravity and blood always wants to go back down. There have been venous valves, which are specialized folds of the tunica intima, and we tend to find them in the limbs. So we see one here. In fact... Got anybody thin enough here? Occasionally, on really thin people, you can you can actually see the valves, especially in the larger veins in the legs. You'll, like you you like you can you can see that there's just a little bit of a you can almost see where the valve is on the outside of the vein. No, no, I can't see. I can't see yours. It's more sometimes you see it on guys with um, some guys who work out and have. Do you? Do you have big uh, veins on your arms, in your forearms? <laughs> no, because you're you're puffing up, so you I can't see yours. Let me see. Come here. Relax. I tend to see them more in the legs, and not. It's kind of difficult to see. The arms don't have them as much as the legs do. What's that? Can you see like a little ridge on his veins? Come here, Mike. Come here. If that doesn't work, we'll give you take off your pants and we'll have a look at your legs. I'm kidding. Come here. Come here. Come here. I'm kidding. <laughs> Let's see. Relax. Relax for a minute. Can't quite see the side. Right there. See the little lines right there? There's, a, there's one right there. So you can kind of see there's a bit of a ridge right there where it kind of disappears on either side. That's the, that's the valve. So the valves help preventing black backflow. Is it like a bump? Yeah, yeah, kind of on both sides. Yeah, yeah. Okay, last but not least, this is good. We're actually getting ahead of the other class. Specific arteries. Ooh, that looks pretty cool this time of night. You could turn lights out here and put some music on. <laughs> Why, y'all fall asleep? Okay, so I thought these were kind of cool. This was, yes, these are from Body World. Uh I actually ended up going, and when I turned around, I had 30 people following me because I was with my wife at the time, and I was explaining everything, and they all thought I worked there, oh. right? And I turned around, there's all these people following me. Yeah, I was the one with the baby. There was the exploding guy. I was more fascinated by the central nervous system. The nervous system was there. So what they've done here, if you don't know, it's called plastination. They actually put chemicals in the body, and through a pressure system, they put the body in pressure, and it solidifies. And what they've done is peeled everything away but the blood vessels. So what you're looking at here is nothing more than hardened blood vessels. So this gives you a sense of the network of blood vessels you have in the various parts of your body. So can you tell that's a male? Okay, so I'm only I'm not going through I'm only going through a few major ones and then one to help you with your blood pressure. So the first is I'm going to go is obviously the aorta, which is important. It's the first vessel out of the heart. It's the largest artery in the body. It's approximately the diameter of a garden hose. 
when it leaves the uh, ventricle of the heart. In other words, 2.5 centimeters in diameter, and the wall is about 2 millimeters thick. It decreases only slightly as it reaches its terminus. So that goes from the top of the heart, so the, the aorta comes out of the top of the heart, it comes down right on top of the spinal column through the thorax and the abdomen, and then it bifurcates. It splits to cover both legs right at the belly button. So your aorta runs from your heart to here, and I say at the belly button is where it separates into your two iliac arteries. Sure. Okay. Uh, the aortic semilunar valve guards the base of the aorta and prevents backflow into the left ventricle. Opposite each of the semilunar cusps is an aortic sinus, which is a slight enlargement of the aortic wall, and this contains barrel receptors to regulate blood pressure. So right then and there, there is a pressure receptor that's letting the brain know what kind of pressures are running in the blood at the time. All right? Um, the different names of the order are named according to their shape or location. So the first part, because it's coming up off the top of the heart, is called the ascending aorta, so it's heading up. Then it goes to the arch of the aorta, which is heading back towards the spinal column. And then it starts traveling down into the descending aorta, which is found, or the thoracic aorta, descending or thoracic, which runs through the thorax, to the diaphragm, and then distal to the diaphragm or subdiaphragmatic until you get to the bifurcation is known as the abdominal aorta. Um, there are only two branches off the ascending aorta, the left and right coronary arteries. So right at the base of the ascending aorta, right where the semilunar valves are, are two tiny little arteries that come out into the left and right coronary arteries to feed the heart. So we see them here. Uh, here is the ascending, the arch, the descending, and the abdominal. So let's go with the arch first. <clears throat> it's deep to the sternum. So think of your heart as on that fifth rib. Deep to the sternum begins at the end of the sternal angle. There are three major branches. The brachiocephalic artery passes superiorly under the right clavicle and branches into the right common carotid artery and the right subclavian artery. So the right common goes up to the head and the right subclavian goes out to the arm. The next branch off is the left common carotid, which supplies the left head. And then another branch, which is the left subclavian that heads to supply the left arm. So if we look here, here is the ascending. This is it. And then we have the arch of the aorta. On the left side, the common carotid and the subclavian are two separate vessels off of the arch. Whereas the right common carotid is a single branch off the arch and then distal to the arch, it branches off into the right subclavian. I, th I think it's so to make room for the superior vena cava to come in, in here. So you have, the, the uh, as the blood comes out, the first thing it goes up is the right common carotid and off to the right subclavian, passes through the arch heading up to the left common carotid and in the next branch, the left subclavian, and then the blood continues on to the descending aorta. I ask questions on these guys, because especially these ones. These are kind of important. We'll get to these in a minute. Well, you guys have already done. Have you guys done the the um, the uh, the uh, vertebral arteries? Jeez, sorry. Yet you haven't done those yet. Okay, you will be doing those because they come off these branches. So you're gonna you you can't quite see them here, but in behind here you you will see where you end up with uh, vertebral arteries that head up up into, you know, the foramen transversarium of the C-spine, right? That's where the vertebral arteries come off these branches and head up into the, up, up the, up the uh, vertebra. We see here another diagram. Here we have the brachiocephalic coming off here, which will go to the right external or carotid, uh, sorry, the right carotid internal and the subclavian. Sorry, I forgot to mention the brachiocephalic, which makes sense, right? Brachio, arm, cephalic, head, right, on the right. Next is the thoracic or the descending aorta. It runs along the right side of the anterior vertebral bodies from T5 to T12. Let's picture that in your head. Runs down the right side of the anterior vertebral bodies. In fact, I don't know if Tammy talked about this, but the fact that this is an elastic artery and it's expanding and moving every heartbeat, it actually starts to put a dent on the right side of the vertebral bodies from 5 to 12. Can you feel 
because it runs in behind the heart and the lungs and everything, is too deep. Um, it usually is a slight indentation on the vertebral bodies. Branches tend to be small off of here. We have the pericardiac, the bronchial, the esophageal, and the posterior mediastinal. I will not ask questions on those. I just want you to understand those branches that come off. So we see here, here's the heart with the vessel coming out. We have the arch here, which, and then the descending is here, or the thoracic aorta. And off of the thoracic aorta are most of your intercostal arteries, which you see coming off here in this beautiful diagram. Um, and you also have branches here that are working on the esophagus as well as it comes down, feeding the tissues of the esophagus and all the intercostals on either side as it travels down um, to, feed, um, to feed the muscles there, as far as that goes. If you've never seen the book, if you ever want to buy a book, his name is Frank Netter. N-E-T-T-E-R. He is the quintessential um, anatomy artist. This is his work. And his, his pictures and his books all look like that. They're freaking amazing. They're amazing diagrams that he draws. Uh, no. Uh, no, no, because I, 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 don't, I don't talk about the branches there. Although the next one I do sometimes ask. So the branches off this segment can be paired or unpaired. That's the thing that in the abdominal aorta, some branches are paired, such as the renal arteries, because there is one that has to go to the right kidney and one that has to go to the left kidney, right? And some are singular. The abdominal aorta begins at the opening in the diaphragm where it remains on the left side of the vertebral bodies, and the abdominal aorta terminates at the point where the aorta bifurcates, where it divides to become the two iliacs, which, of course, we said is at the umbilicus, right? Uh, some branches are paired while others are unpaired, and some branch off anteriorly by while most branch off laterally to the right or the left. So you'll see here we've got the inferior phrenic, which feeds the lungs. We have the renal here, which feeds the kidneys. We have the gonadal here, which, which serves the, in, the inside uh, parts, so uh, uterus, uh, prostate, those sorts of things. Uh, we, then we've got the lumbar ones here. Just understand, see so you've got some paired and some not. Mesenteric here and the inferior mesenteric feed all the internal organs and the mesentery that surrounds the organs of the stomach. I don't really ask the branches. I thought about it because I used to ask all the time, but I decided not to. But what you need, do need to know is understand that there is an ascending, an arch, and what branches come off the arch for sure. Those I will test on. And then the descending and the abdominal. And knowing that it bifurcates into the two common iliacs. This is the guy, though, that we do need to know. Anybody here heard of the Circle of Willis? What you doing? What you talk about? Yeah. Okay. So, the circle of Willis is anastomosis found at the base of the brain. So I took the brain out and looked at it. There's this circle of many, many vessels that it's an anastomosis. It's made up of five pairs of arteries to ensure the posterior part and the anterior part of the brain's blood supply are united. Thus, this results in a vast amount of the brain being supplied. In fact, my ex-brother-in-law, his internal carotid. Um, uh, uh, bifurcate or um, um, it split. Oh, stupid, can't think of the name of it. Anyways, he ended up clotting it. So the clot of his entire internal carotid, there was no blood going through. You would think he would die. But because of the circle of Willis, because of this vast anastomosis, he is still able to supply his brain and survive with having one major artery completely plugged up. Uh, the origins of this anastomosis arise from the pair of vertebral arteries and the pair of internal carotids. The vertebral arteries unite at the caudal border of the pons to form the basilar artery, which gives off a number of paired branches to divide into the two posterior cerebral arteries. So we see here, these two vertebral arteries are the ones that are coming up the foramen transversarium. Okay? Once they pass through, what happens is, so the vertebral arteries go up until they get to C1, C2. At C2, they travel back towards the vertebral bodies, up over onto a groove of C1, into the frame and magnum, and up into the brain. Everybody got me? Okay, so that's these guys here. The two vertebral arteries meet here and run along the basilar artery with all these branches feeding off the various parts of the brain. Okay, Once they get up here, they form the two posterior cerebral arteries, and then the anastomosis continues to meet with the middle cerebral arteries. So we have this posterior communicating, and then we have the anterior communi communicating at the top that are made up, making up the anterior cerebral arteries. 
thus creating a massive anastomosis. And if I take this and put it on here, you can see where it all fits. So here's your two carotids, and this is your two vertebrals, because this is the pons in the midbrain. This is eventually going to be the spinal cord coming down here. So you can see how it sits at the base of the brain here. Uh, your two, um, we'll look back here just for a minute here. There they are, there's the internal carotids. I'm like, where the hell are they are? There they are right here. So that's these two guys right here. So when we go back here for a moment, these external carotids, okay, right? The external, so if we go back to here, this is called the external carotid. It then bifurcates here to become an internal carotid and an external carotid. The external carotid stays out. The internal carotid heads deep and enters here to form this massive anastomosis at the base of the brain. What do you need to know? You need to know the vertebral arteries here form the basal artery, that the basal artery communicates with the posterior communicating artery to the two internal carotids, and it further anastomoses into the two anterior communicating arteries. That's what you need to take away. You still have lots of blood coming in. Yeah, so what happened was my brother-in-law, his right internal carotid from, from here to the brain is completely plugged with a clot. But because of the fact that this is a large anastomosis and, 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 and oxygenated blood is coming in from all these areas, the fact that he has one of this cut off to here, there's still blood coming from all over the place. It helps feed his brain. Or, or yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or even from the other internal, right? Right? Yeah. Right. So, so this is why this is so important, and, and you'll find a lot of talk about it. But a circle of Willis is basically a massive anastomosis at the base of your brain. Uh, the vertebral basal arterial system supplies the posterior circulation of the brain. Off of each posterior cerebral artery is uh, called the posterior communicating, of which there are two. And there are two branches of, off of each internal carotid, the ophthalmic artery and the anterior cerebral. I won't necessarily ask you questions on that, but just understand that you have all these branches and they're all feeding all these various parts of the brain at any time. The internal carotids continue to form the two middle cerebrals, and then there's a branch which connects the two anterior cerebral arteries, which is called the anterior communicating artery. So we see them all right here. So, what do you need to know? Anterior communicating, anterior cerebral, internal carotids, posterior communicating, basilar, and vertebral. Those are the ones you need to know. Okay? that go too fast there? The cerebral arteries, there's the anterior and the, post and the middle and the posterior. Anterior supply most of the medial and superior surfaces of the brain. Does that surprise you? Superior. So even the top of the brain gets supplied from this guy, okay, up over top. The middle cerebral artery supplies the lateral surface of the brain in the temporal pole, and the posterior cerebral artery supply the inferior surface of the brain in the occipital pole. This is an actual brain removed from a human body where they have put a colored wax into the arterial system of the brain. You kind of see the circle of Willis in its real form uh, as compared to diagrams. All right, any questions? Therefore, we can say that the cerebral artery, or the arterial circle, the circle of Willis, is an important anastomosis at the base of the brain between the four arteries that supply the brain. Posterior cerebral, posterior communicating, internal carotids, anterior cerebral arteries, and the anterior communicating artery. And this circle gives rise to numerous smaller branches to the brain. So it's a very, very, very important vessel. Now, if I go back for a moment, has anybody here heard of a baryaneurysm? Baryaneurysms, uh, an aneurysm is a weakened wall and, and an expansion of, of the vessel. So imagine, if you will, because it's under high pressure, it maintains the circle. But if there's a weakened wall, it's almost like a bubble coming out because the pressure forces the wall to expand. Baryaneurysms happen at any intersection. They're, they're very genetic. 
Uh, you don't know you've got them. And they can happen at any of the intersections between vessels at weak points. Okay? And you may not even know you have them. And even if they find them, there's fucker all they can do for you anyways. Except watch your blood pressure. Uh, so high pressures could result in bursting those. Those burst and you're kind of saying hello to the pearly gates. Right, yeah, right there. Well, but but yeah, through all those branches, they they kind of feed. Okay, brachial artery. So all you guys seem to have problems with this one. I saw in a lot of your reflections, you, some of you said when you were doing your blood pressure, you had a hard time finding the brachial artery, correct? Yeah? Don't lie to me. I read all your reflections. I read it lots. Okay, so... Now, brachial artery is a continuation of the axillary artery, which was the continuation of the subclavian. So we think back to that arch, okay? The subclavian came off. It's called the subclavian because it runs sub to the clavicle. From, and it's, it's just named differently, even though it's a continuation of the same tube. So as it runs underneath the clavicle, it's called the subclavian. It then becomes the axillary. Where's the axilla? Right? So it travels in the armpit area. And then after that, it becomes the brachial artery. It's still the same. So it begins at the distal border of teres major and terminates by bifurcating into the ulna and radial arteries just distal to the bend of the elbow. So we see it here coming down. It's right here where it then bifurcates at the radial and the ulna at the elbow. We also, I like this picture as well. You can see how it tra translates to biceps brachii. It actually comes underneath. So I want a volunteer. Yeah, but you got a shirt on. I need I need an arm. Need somebody to give me an arm. It's got his guns out. Come here, real quick, because I haven't got much time. Okay, so all of you guys, where do you palpate for your brachial artery for your blood pressure? Right, so you have to understand that we said it bifurcates at the elbow, which is here. So the brachial artery actually runs from here to here on the medial aspect of biceps under there. I already found it. Okay? So that's where you find it. So you've got to get up under biceps and get underneath to find that. And I don't know if you guys have been taught this, but the best way to always to do um, a, a pulse, you push firmly where you think it is, and then you slowly let off until you feel the pulse. Okay? So you want to pull that biceps away. Come underneath it. Feel me touching it now? Right? Okay? It's as simple as that. So if you're having problems with it, because I find a lot of students get way down here, well, it's already kind of crossed over to bifurcate. So you want to get a little more proximal up under the bicep to find it. And you'll find it, because that's where your cuff should go, right? Again, another problem that students tend to have, they put the blood pressure cuff way down here. Uh, 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 uh. Get it up here. Right? So that you've got room to put the head of that stethoscope. Because if your stethoscope is touching... Your your blood pressure cough. Now you can hear it. it drives you it drives you insane. So get that cuff up there with that line where that brachial artery is, so you got room to put your stethoscope here, right? And listen to it. All right. Thank you. So remember that for your blood pressure. Next is the radial ulnar, and I, I talk about these simply because this is again where you're taking a pulse, so you want to make sure where they are. Uh, the smaller branch uh, is the radial artery but it is a direct continuation, and that's why you use it for a pulse. So there's no turn here. It's a direct line straight down the brachial artery, down the radial to the thumb, okay? That's why we use it for pulse more so than the ulnar. It's also a little more palpable. It enters the wrist on the lateral side where it bifurcates into a superficial and deep branch, which, ana which then anastomosis, becomes an anastomosis with the ulnar artery. And then the ulnar artery is the larger of the two. It goes along the medial part of the arm where it again bifurcates at the wrist into a superficial and deep branch and it then anastomoses with the radial artery and this anastomosis created by the radial and ulnar arteries is known as the palmar arches of the hand which we see here so here's your radial artery coming down here by the radiostyloid and then you see a, a anastomosis here which you've got a superficial branch and a deep branch containing these two arches, which then feeds blood to the entire palmar and the finger area itself. And the ulnar artery comes here. Want to see a really cool, neat thing real quick? 
So this is a really quick test. I want you actually. I'm going to use your. I need not take anything off. Okay. So it's called an Allen test. So sometimes people have. Um, can you just slide that up? Just a, not not too much. Good. Um, let's go this way. So sometimes people have um, issues with circulation in the hand, and it uh, results in um, uh, you know, changes, trophic changes in the hand, and so forth. You're nice and hot, which is going to work perfect. So it's called the Allen's test. And what I want to do is I want to find out if one or two of the two arteries in the anastomosis aren't functioning properly. Let's go up here a little bit further so everybody can see. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. I'm going to push on the two arteries, and I want you to squeeze your hand firmly until I tell you to stop. Okay, just a minute. Okay, squeeze. Okay, keep squeezing, keep squeezing, keep squeezing. So what's happening is, is I am occluding the arteries her hands are getting whiter and whiter and whiter. Okay, so let's show them your hand. See the hand? Okay, okay, relax, relax, relax. Watch. Okay, now, yeah, if she had any kind of occlusion there from disease, that might take a long time to happen. So then I would do exactly the same thing and release the radial artery to see if one was a little more occluded than the other and a good healthy... Uh, pair of arteries, the hand should flush up at, in the same speed at the same time. So if you had some issues with circulation, that's the way I can test if one or the other isn't functioning properly. It's called Allen's test. Thanks. Okay. See ya.